The Clean Power Hour is brought to you by CPS America, the maker of North America's number one three-phase string inverter. With over six gigawatts shipped in the U.S., the CPS America product lineup includes three-phase string inverters ranging from 25 to 275 kW. Their flagship inverter, the CPS 250-275, is designed to work with solar plants ranging from 2 megawatts to 2 gigawatts. The 250-275 pairs well with CPS America's exceptional data communication, controls, and energy storage solutions. Go to chintpowersystems.com to find out more. Today on the Clean Power Hour, Community Solar and Agrivoltaics. My guest today is Michael Marsh. He is the Chief Development Officer for Blue Wave Solar. And before we get into the interview, I want to encourage our listeners to please give us a rating and review at Spotify or Apple. Those are the two best ways to give us a rating and a review so others can find the podcast and help us speed the energy transition. We also have a YouTube channel. So if you go to cleanpowerhour.com and click on the YouTube icon, you will find the channel and you can subscribe there. Without further ado, welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you, Tim. Great to be here. So it's heady days in the United States. We just got the IRA passed. And this is going to, by my estimation, give us a 3x ramp rate on solar and storage in the next 10 years. It's going to be a massive explosion of growth in solar and storage. We were already riding a massive wave, but now it is truly an explosion. And you see this in the mainstream media now, just lots and lots and lots of news about the investment opportunity for consumer investors and, of course, institutional investors. And Blue Wave is a good example of that. We will get into that story. But for our listeners, Mike, what is your background? How did you get interested in clean energy? And how did you come to Blue Wave? Yeah, oh, it is heady days. We're, we're, we're thrilled and excited. And yeah, quickly, my, my background, I come from conventional real estate development about nine years ago. I was lucky to connect with the founders of Blue Wave you know, very early days when they were growing up, building the company in Massachusetts. I had the opportunity to come in and apply what I knew about building, you know, golf courses and office towers and take that into the the solar game and go build a bunch of projects, but but also our our development team from the ground up. And, you know, nine years later, uh, you know, I've never looked back at, at, at doing anything else because, you know, the purpose and the and the mission and and everything that I think a lot of folks are in clean energy for is, is what's drawn me and then what's going to keep me here for the long term. Yeah. I, I love solar because there are so many mission-driven people and companies. I am a fish in water, so to speak. I joined the solar industry full-time in 2016, but I grew up doing solar thermal in my backyard in Albuquerque, New Mexico in the 1970s. I didn't know what PV was at the time. It was not really in the landscape. It was very expensive. It was there. It was invented in 1954, if you didn't know that. And I just named my sailboat Vanguard One after the first satellite that the U.S. launched, which was solar-powered. And so solar, you know, had a had a good 70 years of maturation. So it's mature technology. The cost adoption curve has brought the price down significantly. It's down about 80% in the last 10 years. And now we are just leaning in and stepping on the gas. The other important data point for anyone listening to this interview is that we don't need a huge portion of our landscape 
to completely green the grid. We need one to 2% to completely green the grid with solar batteries and wind power. We've already converted 6% of the landscape in the United States to roads and buildings. So it's a fraction of what, what we've already built on. And so solar and wind truly are light on the land for many reasons, which we will talk about here, you know, in the realm of agrivoltaics or dual use solar. But Mike, what are you guys up to at Blue Wave? Give us the big picture and tell us why Axiom was so interested in investing in you. Yeah. So Blue Wave, for those who we, we haven't met yet in, in the industry, born in Massachusetts, you know, grew up in the early days of the SREC program, really focused as a, a DG scale solar developer in the US and have kind of taken that footprint and, and grown it to the, the broader Northeast. We're, you know, really focused as a regional developer, don't want to be national, don't want to be global. We really focused on being a best in breed, primarily DG scale developer on the solar side and always been very mission-driven. The original founder of the company, John DeVillers, you know, was appointed by President Clinton to run the New England EPA, you know, longtime public servant and, and environmental warrior. And that that ethos has really informed what we do and, and how we do it. We became certified as a B Corp in 2017, you know, really saw that as a a natural extension of, of who we are as a company. And these days, you know, the footprint is, is that that kind of Northeast regional focus, gigawatt, you know, two gigawatt to two gigawatts of pipeline in process, working towards, you know, gigawatt and a half uh, NTP'd by 2025. And that's, I think, what, what Axiom really saw was, you know, the whole premise of, of the partnership we formed and announced this year was, you know, Blue Wave has this, mission commitment and, and this particular investment focus. Axiom is a very long-term open-ended fund that that takes a very long view towards building and owning infrastructure and was, you know, what was most important to us, extremely aligned from a, a values and emission standpoint. And so, you know, that partnership has just been very, very natural around, you know, just continuing to, to deliver clean energy projects. Yeah. You know, I can imagine that development is very capital intensive and you you want to make as big an impact as you can in your lane right and and you guys are working in the community solar arena primarily this is you know 1 to 10 megawatt projects these are you know say 1 to 50 acre solar farms or 2 to 50 acre solar farms and you really made a mark you know in my mind by being thought leaders in the in the realm of agrivoltaics, I want to geek out on that. That's a that's a a very hot topic because I think it appeals to rural communities that you can do agriculture on solar farms. It doesn't have to be quote unquote an industrial only facility. It can be an agricultural facility. You can grow crops. You can graze sheep under solar arrays, and this is very much being done. As anyone in the industry knows, and and for those of you who are listening who aren't, just Google agrivoltaics and or dual use solar, and you will find. And this is happening all over the world. You can also grow food crops like strawberries and spinach, and so it's there, there's many many opportunities for dual use or multi use solar. And, you know, just thinking about the conversion of land from whatever the current land use is. Here in the Midwest, where I live, 
it's primarily corn and bean farming. So these are cash crops, very heavy on the land with chemicals and chemical inputs and fertilizers converted to a field growing grass or hopefully pollinator seed mix and and then potentially being used in agricultural ways like grazing so it's good for good for the land it's it's you know it's really restorative to the land if you if you treat the land well and you can do that in the solar realm but what was it about agrivoltaics i guess that got you guys interested and and where have you seen the you know the state of the art move in the last you know 5 6 years yeah to your point there's, you know, we, as an industry, we are light on the land relative to, to lots of other uses, you know, relative to a parking lot or a subdivision, but still, you know, when you look at the, the use of land for solar and you kind of draw out the curve, particularly now with the passage of the IRA and, and a lot of the other supportive federal and, and state level policy, you're talking about millions of acres going into a solar use. And, and I wouldn't necessarily use the word conversion because you're not necessarily taking land away from another use for the long term. But still, you're talking about you know millions of acres that will go from being whatever it is today to, to primarily a solar use. And we thought about that and you looked at what was happening in the early days of the industry. It just felt like there was a lot of waste. You know, you'd, you'd build a solar array and, and at that time, we're just running around just trying to get projects done because industry was in its infancy, but you put up a, a fence and a gate and kind of lock the gate and walk away and, and totally miss the opportunity to keep using the land, you know, under the panels, around the panels for, for a more productive, you know, long-term purpose. So, you know, combine that, you know, that sense of, of a missed opportunity with, with, you know, our values around, you know, kind of triple bottom line, you know, thinking about not just the ecological impact, but the, you know, local economic, economic development impact and the clean energy impact. And you know, there's this huge and very natural opportunity to, to do more with, with you know, the, the land where we are building a project. So what that has led us to over time and, and others have been on this journey as well is, yes, absolutely, we should be planting in and around arrays with pollinator-friendly uh, seed mixes. That's, in our view, kind of table stakes at this point. Everybody should be doing that everywhere. Grazing sheep is is also really natural. It actually just makes pure economic sense from an O and M standpoint. You know, sheep operating costs are not rising with inflation, while while the cost of running a gas powered mower is, for example. But even then, there's there's an even more elegant synergy where, you know, plants love shade. Certain plants love shade. Solar panels love the evaporative cooling of crops planted beneath them. You know, there's, there's even, the more you look, the, the more you see these really awesome synergies between, you know, an active agricultural use and a solar use. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed that out. It's not only a viable place to grow crops under, you know, in the shade under the solar panels and the sheep love the shade as well, right? It, it, it makes them less thirsty, less heat stressed. And so when you, when you visit or see photos of, sheep on solar rays, you often will see them basking in the shade, but it's good for the solar production, right? Heat is the enemy of solar panels, which is a little ironic because they're designed to capture energy from the sun, but heat causes resistance and the array will be less productive as it heats up. So that evaporative energy from the plants is cooling the backside of the array and cooling the array in general. And so it's a win-win. 
we are also creating organic farm ground. You know, after a solar array has been there for 30 years, from whatever the land use was, of course, there's there's different land uses that came before the solar. Here in the in the Midwest, though, it's mostly row cropping, and and so steel piles and some buried cables in the ground is absolutely benign and good for the soil. The soil is resting and gathering much more biotic activity. Many more microorganisms are going to be growing in that soil. And truly, you can have organic farm ground, which is going to make the ground more valuable. So it's it's just a win-win-win. And then there's, of course, the economic aspects of this. This is a huge economic uh, boon and boom for job creation, for you know growth of technology, that whole economy, making the energy transition, stepping us back from the brink of climate chaos, improving human health. The benefits of the clean energy transition are so many and and so rich, it boggles the mind. We forget sometimes, and that's the other thing that I like about the solar industry, uh, is that we are more conscious of this. But but fossil fuel pollution kills 8 million people a year in the, in the world. It's a holocaust on an annual basis, which, of course, when, when, when we have a, you know, a war, a real holocaust, we don't stand for that and we take action. Well, we've kind of been sitting by the sidelines for decades watching this disaster unfold, not only on human health, but of course on the environment and on future generations. And now we're doing something about it with the IRA and congratulations to the Biden administration and to the solar industry and SEIA who lobbied so hard to make this happen. This infrastructure bill is truly massive. I think it's $370 billion for clean energy and environment. And we are, you know, we're going from, from here to here in the next 10 years. We're really climbing that S curve and it is very, very heady days. So anybody listening, reach out to me if you want to get into the solar or clean clean tech industries. I love networking and helping people find their toehold. If you're coming from another energy industry, you're welcome. And other any other industry, right? We we need all kinds of professionals. Mike, what else is on your mind, though? I guess about community solar and agrivoltaics. And I don't want to I don't want to miss the fact also that that Blue Wave spun off Perch Energy. Check out episode eighty with Bruce Stewart, who's the CEO of Perch, which is a community solar service company helping to subscribe consumers and business owners to community solar projects. So that's a dedicated company now. So Blue Wave is really creating quite the legacy. But what else should our listeners know about your your guys' work, uh, you know, in the present day and moving forward? And, and if you would address, you know, we touched on it, that Axiom infrastructure made a major investment in Blue Wave, and that gives you some some legs. And, and so I'd love for you to riff a little bit on on the future of Blue Wave with that with those newfound coffers. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned Perch because you know it kind of glossed over community solar as as a part of the, the overall mix here. We're so excited about agrivoltaics because it's this way to not just use the land productively, but also you know kind of foster a local agricultural economy. You know, you get to say as a developer now that not only are we bringing a clean energy project and you know if you add storage to a solar project. Now we're a much more useful asset on the grid. I also get to say, 
you know, we're paying local tax revenue. We've been doing that for years, but now, you know, local jobs, like you're creating long-term, there was a new job being created here with agrivoltaic technicians. You're supporting long-term farm stability, farm ownership. You're really making a contribution at the local economic level. Community solar is yet another way to do that, you know, to, to share the benefits of these projects that are really cited. You know, we focus at the DG scale. And so, as you said, one of 10 megawatt projects, we're putting projects in folks' communities and community solar is that vehicle to then share energy savings in that community. And so we, as you mentioned, built what is now called Perched Energy, actually glossed over the fact that, that I ran that business for a couple of years, pre-revenue to, to just before the spin out and when it became Perch. And you know, the, a huge part of that was tying back to our mission, which is about access. It's not just about like, hey, let's transform the energy system. That's great. Like we're, we're thrilled to be doing that. But we firmly believe that everybody should share in, in the benefits of this new energy system that to a lot of the points you made is, you know, hopefully and, and, and on its way to solving a lot of the ills of, of the existing and, and historic energy system. But, you know, I, I will acknowledge that with community solar, we've already seen an unfortunate kind of skewing of you know, the benefits go to well-off folks with good credit scores. You know, that that's who the industry's kind of served so far in the, in the majority. So, you know, Bruce and the folks at Perch have been working hard and, and we at Blue Wave have still been working hard to, you know, find ways to get community solar into low and moderate income communities where in, in a lot of cases, those communities have borne the brunt of the existing energy system. You know, I'm thrilled to see the the energy justice and environmental justice focus in the IRA and the, the structure of the IRA and the, and the incremental tax credits or incremental value on the ITC, because you know we, we firmly believe that's critical to it to adjust energy transition. And to to tie that out to your question on Axiom, that that's a lot of what what they see as well is their investment focus is has, is a very clear kind of social element to it in addition to the you know, clean energy and, and dollars and cents focused. And we are, we're on that mission as well. So, you know, taking the benefit of that partnership where we've kind of grown out of the stage of, you know, small companies with, you know, a couple bucks and, and a good idea into the stage where, you know, we're trying to build large infrastructure at scale. You know, we're, we're really excited to have the benefit of, of a capital partner with a long-term view and the kind of, resource that that you know we feel we were going to need to to be effective and compete for the long term. Yeah, I I sitting here listening to myself and yourself, it it reminds me of just the layer cake that is this wonderful thing called clean energy. We're creating manufacturing jobs, we're reshoring manufacturing. There's significant incentives in the IRA to reshore manufacturing and and that works, right? That's industrial policy. Q-Cells is, is looking at building a, a ginormous solar and storage factory here in the U.S. now. And, and it takes that, that long-term, you know, assurity that, that there is going to be a glide path, so to speak. It's good for landowners. A landowner in the Midwest can triple their income converting from leasing their land for cash cropping to leasing their land to a solar developer who's going to give them guaranteed income with a small escalator for 20 or 30 years. 
And so it is good for rural communities. And then, of course, there's the tax income for the local districts, primarily school districts, but all kinds of taxing bodies. We have like 15 different taxing bodies in Illinois that benefit from clean energy projects. And these rural communities really need a shot in the arm. They are struggling. They're struggling to keep the next generation interested in these small town communities. They want, you know, the young people want to go to the big city where the action is and, and they are leaving in droves. And so this provides an anchor for landowners. So I know that solar and wind have their critics. I don't know if you have any comments about that. You know, you do see stories in the news of projects getting not permitted, for example, or there being what we call nimbyism. It's something that we in the solar industry need to take seriously and need to get better at being proactive about educating communities. What is this? How does it work? What are the long-term impacts on the land? What happens to solar panels when they're decommissioned and those kinds of things? What are your thoughts about developing solar projects and local communities? It is critical. Yeah, I think if we want to keep our social license and and you see what happens, you know, when an industry starts to lose that with with oil and gas, and I would even argue some of the utilities, if we want to be in this very favorable position we're in now, where we're viewed as a as, as a solution and, and not a problem, we we have to be incredibly responsible with the way we approach local communities and the, and the way we use land. And, and that really does for us tie back to agrivoltaics in a lot of cases, because when you're going to a community and saying, yeah, I'm going to take this 50 or hundred acres and it's going to become a power plant. And some folks may not like the view, but it's going to have big picture environmental benefits that are very abstract. And you may not, you know, you may not ever see a piece of in, in any real way. That's very different and, and a lot harder conversation than going to folks and saying, I know this is some of the best farmland in town. Great news. It'll continue to be actively farmed. In fact, the farmer who's been farming it for two generations will continue, you know, that family will continue to actually farm it, not just own it and collect a check. And we're going to pay the local tax revenue and all the points you made. It's it's not a panacea. It's not going to solve every person who doesn't like the look of a a solar project and, and their objections, which, you know, we understand, right? Folks, come into a community with the expectation that it's going to be more or less the way it was when they got there. And a solar project introduces change. And then everybody, no matter where they, they live or where they sit, you know, has a gut reaction to change and it's not always positive. And so, it, you know, we understand that, but, but we do see real tangible things we can do in the way these projects are developed. You know, community outreach in the front end is, is always just the right thing to do, but then, you know, really highlighting a lot of these benefits where it's, not a long-term loss of, of farmland. It's an opportunity for folks to participate directly through community solar if that's available. You know, that that goes a long way for us, you know, as an industry to, to keeping our, our social license. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Clean Power Hour or viewing it on YouTube. We do have a great YouTube channel. If you're not subscribed, please go to cleanpower.group and hit that YouTube icon and subscribe to our channel. Of course, you can find all of our content on your favorite audio platform as well. So please give us a rating and review. Back to the show. Yeah, I love the low and middle income aspects of solar and community solar. There's major incentives in in 
the IRA incentivizing developers to use, you know, American-made products and to benefit low and middle-income communities. The big incentive heretofore has been the ITC, the investment tax credit, right, which was 26%. Now it's 30% until 2034, and it's retroactive. And so that is just very good. We have a standalone ITC now for storage. But the ITC goes to 60% on some projects now, depending on the content of the of the technology and the constituents who are going to benefit from the project. So that is that is huge. I guess the, you know, one of the questions is how quickly can we ramp US manufacturing? We are we are still in the early days of establishing, you know, solar panel manufacturing, inverter manufacturing. We're further along in racking. You know, there are several large racking companies, namely Nextracker and ATI, Array Technologies, who are born and bred in the United States. And and we have a healthy U.S. steel industry, although we do import a lot of steel from, from elsewhere. Oh, and before I forget, our listeners can check out ASGA, the American Solar Grazing Association, at solargrazing.org. That's a wonderful group um, that Lexi Hain established. and. She was on the show. I don't know the episode number off the top of my head, but just Google Lexi Hain and Asga. They have a new executive director now. Have you, uh, in the realm of of codifying agrivoltaics and and maturing our industry and 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 really codifying best practices, where are you at? Where do you guys go for, you know, bleeding edge ideas on how to be better developers of of agrivoltaic projects. Yeah, we I would give a shout out to the folks at NREL who've been running actually for years now a working group called Inspire that is is meant to kind of collect and surface a lot, a lot of those best practices and, and good ideas and, and really work them through. So folks I think who've and, and Lexi is is part of that group have who've been visible on agrivoltaics. I'd also mention Byron Komenek and, and Jack Solar Garden, who I believe you, you might have had on the show, yep, have been really visible in agrivoltaics so far. Have been part of that venue where it's an acknowledgement that it's still relatively early days, and that, that you know if we really want to be successful and scale this, we we need to come to clear definitions. You know, we're working through what those definitions are. You know, for us, we do firmly believe that, you know as I mentioned that to plant a pollinator seed mix, again, great start, super important, but but not necessarily an agrivoltaic project per se. We, and, and grazing does, is absolutely agrivoltaics, but there's a level of progression from there. And, and for us, that's entailed building projects that really have the agricultural use at parity with the solar use. So really thinking through, okay, if you kind of graft agriculture onto a conventional solar project with a conventional design as an afterthought, you're not going to get nearly as good an outcome as if you really design with the farmer first and, and with agriculture first. And, you know, that goes to things like row spacing. So you mentioned the, the cash crops, commodity crops in the Midwest. Right now we're working on projects where we're really trying to crack the code on how to build an effective solar project that also has a really effective commodity crop use, you know, corn, for example, and and potatoes and, and a few other crops. And 
when you really get a farmer engaged, we actually have someone on staff who comes from a deep farming background and conservation background. You get into the weeds of, okay, I need this row spacing to turn this particular, you know, farm equipment and get under the rows and the rows need to be this height. And, you know, I, I think for me, that's the the definition is if you've really exerted you know, that level of, of nuance and thought and detail in the design of your project to, to enable that long-term active agricultural use. So we painted a very rosy picture, I think, of of the solar industry. And it is, it's, it's, it's very happy days. I mean, the IRA is a huge shot in the arm in what was already a massive transfer of wealth, as Jigger Shaw likes to say. This is potentially a hundred trillion dollar global industry now in the next 10 years. But what are some of the challenges that energy professionals need to address and get better at, I guess, Mike, I think this is very important also that we're constantly sharpening the saw and striving to be better, a better industry, a more mature industry, and one that walks the walks the talk. Let's start with the composition of the industry itself. So, so far we've skewed white and male and, you know, that there's not the diversity even that you would see in the general population, let alone in, a, in an industry that kind of upheld its stated goal of, of being more inclusive. So we need to diversify the workforce in the industry, full stop. From there, we need to get a hell of a lot better at sharing the benefits of the projects more, more directly. So I, I would call out Shalonda Baker, who's, current, who's now in the administration, wrote a great book called Revolutionary Power that really goes deep on what a more just transition looks like and and what a more meaningful sharing of the benefits of Can you giving. say that name again? Yeah, Shalonda Baker Revolutionary Powers the book. Okay. And and a lot of those priorities are are what are baked into the IRA and have been really forming federal policy from what I can tell. Yeah. On the diversity end, it's not easy. This is not an easy problem to solve. You know, I worked for an EPC for five years, a, a construction company that installed solar arrays, rooftop and community solar. And it's a it's a very male environment. We're a construction company. Construction is is a very male industry in general. And I'm just curious, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan of trade schools, for example. You know, we have to start young, educating our our children that there's there's more to life than going to college, for example. We we need people to go and become electricians and welders and you know mechanical installers and laborers and and and, and all the professions that that you know the full spectrum. But do you have any specific thoughts, I guess, about how do we recruit more women into clean tech? There is the organization Women in Clean Tech in the Bay Area, which is a wonderful group. And I know that SEIA is is very you know very much shining a light on this. We we have to become more intentional. I myself struggle to find female guests for this show. I've had it's very representative. It's probably eighty percent men and twenty percent women, and and it needs to be more 50-50, which is what the you know how the population is. But what are your thoughts about how do we get more women and people of color? I guess both. Populations are are significantly underrepresented in clean tech and clean energy. 
what are you guys doing, I guess, to, to solve this problem? Yeah. Summer of 2020, we, we sat down as a lot of folks did at that time and, and wrote out a plan and some goals focused, you know, we published it as our, as our anti-racist action plan. And we actually just published a piece and kind of holding ourselves accountable for, for progress relative to that plan. But a lot of what we've done so far is really focus on long-term pipeline, talent pipeline development, because you're right. Yeah. When you get to the point of, of a hire, yes, they're absolutely tactical things you can and should do, you know, to diversify the candidate pool, you know, where, where you're looking and, and, you know, how we're evaluating talent and making sure that kind of drive out bias at every step, you know, at, at that later stage, once you have a role posted and, and you're actually in the hiring process. But to your point, that only goes so far, what we really need to do is focus on long-term pipeline and, and talent development. And so, you know, we've formed a lot of partnerships with folks in the industry, folks, you know, educational institutions in, in our neighborhood in, in New England to foster that long-term development. It's very much playing the long game, but that's where we've put our, the, the most effort. Very good. Very good. Well, in our last couple of minutes together, Mike, what else are you excited about? You mentioned utility storage in our pre-show conversation. If you want to talk about storage, I, I, I love the fact that we now have standalone ITC on stationary storage. Of course, we're on the cusp of the electrification of transportation on mass, and that is a huge a huge piece of the of the puzzle, so to speak. Forty percent of of greenhouse gas emissions are related to transportation, and you don't see it today in the U.S. Right, less than two percent or so of of car sales or car and truck sales are pure EVs. But within five to seven years, it's going to go to a hundred percent. You know, and it just takes seven doublings. Once you're at one percent, seven doublings gets you to a hundred percent, and and you'd be surprised how quickly that can happen. And then you look to the future by going to Western Europe, and they're already there. In Norway, I think BEVs and plug-in hybrids are 80% of new car sales. And, and then there's other countries, the Netherlands and Germany are on the 60% range, something like that. So Europeans are going hard after it. It helps that energy, they're paying more of the true cost of energy in Europe. We have very cheap, dirty fossil fuels here. And we complain about $5 a gallon gas. Well, go to Northern Europe. It's ten dollars, right. uh, literally. It's twice what we pay, if not more. And the same on natural gas and and other fossil fuels. Energy is just not cheap in Europe, and and they make smaller homes and they drive smaller cars and they have way way better public infrastructure for transportation. And so there is a benefit to humans paying the true cost of energy. It shouldn't be cheap. It's a good we we want we want affordable energy, but. Dirty energy should not be cheap, certainly. I'm not opposed to clean energy being affordable. And, and certainly that's a thrust of and, and a major winning point for community solar is it does make solar truly accessible to anybody who pays a power bill can now participate in the solar and storage economy. But what are you guys doing in the, in the storage arena? Yeah, so excited about storage because it really is it's the answer to, to the question that we've created by trying to scale a, a whole industry doing intermittent distributed generation, right? And as we've kind of waded into storage and really wrapped our minds around 
what's possible and, and all the different use cases, what emerges really quickly is, you know, within the, the kind of walls of Blue Wave in our portfolio, but but even more broadly, you know, in, in given state markets or RTOs or even at the industry level, we have this huge opportunity to manage like a much more comprehensive, holistic energy transition than you do if you just think in terms of, you know, a narrow slice of AI, AI build these intermittent generation projects and it's somebody else's problem to figure out, you know, how to manage that at the grid level. You know, we we can, you know, by understanding kind of the problems, the grid problems that we create with our, our renewables projects and the potential solutions that storage represents, you know, we can really drive the transition, the overall transition faster by coming to utilities, coming to regulators, coming to policymakers and saying, you know, here's how these two things can work well together. And here's what we need to do to wrap, you know, dramatically accelerate the the deployment. You know, you, I think you quoted Jigger earlier. And one of the things I always, you know, stuck in my head was just deploy, deploy, deploy. Like we have the technologies, it just needs to get out there. And, you know, as, as we've kind of wrestled with first climbing the learning curve ourselves, but also then helping, you know, folks we deal with it at utilities on the technical side, you know, really understand what's possible with, with storage. It's clear that you know, we as an industry need to be able to really clearly articulate those those value propositions as a kind of macro level, but also at the technical level to get more of the stuff deployed. And so I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about, you know, really getting to that point where we can bring that value prop to the table and enable a much more, you know, much faster and more just transition. You know, here in Illinois, we have legislation incentivizing the transition of coal plants to solar and batteries. Batteries are like a giant shock absorber. Mm-hmm. They're a two-way street, right? They can absorb energy and they can inject energy. And solar panels are more of a one-way street, right? When the sun is at midday, they're injecting full steam. And that can be a stressor on the grid. And so batteries are very good to pair with solar in the greater scheme of things. They, of course, also provide a much broader shoulders to clean energy. You can store energy from the sun in a battery and then discharge it later in the evening. So you get more resiliency in the case of a grid outage. You get more benefits financially. There's there's a greater value stack to the storage facility. In ERCOT in Texas, there's as much storage now in development on the grid as there is solar. And solar Texas passed California, I think, as the number one solar market this year. So there's just massive expansion of solar and batteries now in in many parts of the country. Not all, but many. And I happen to be in one of those places. We have a $250 per kWh incentive. That's per kWh, per kilowatt hour, to install solar, to install storage. So if if you're a solar installer, solar developer, and you haven't been doing storage projects, you should get in that game and you can reach out to me and I will tell you how to do that. You have to find the right partners. Not everyone understands PJM and MISO. Those are the markets I operate in most and every market has its unique value stack. So you have to really get dialed in with some local companies that that understand that and and can dial that in. The ROI for customers is is eye-popping, right? It's a, it's a two-year payback on the storage now. And solar and storage, it overall is like 5x what the solar alone would have given you in terms of ROI. So 
it's a total, total game changer. And that's only getting sweeter now with the IRA at our backs. Mike, it's been a great pleasure. I really congratulate you on all your success at Blue Wave. Congratulations on, you know, the, the Axiom acquisition. And how can our listeners reach you? Thanks to my, it's been a great time. Really appreciate all the work you're doing to, to spread the good word on, on clean energy. And if folks want to find us, it's bluewave.energy. Very good. Well, I'm Tim Montague. Please check out all of our content at cleanpowerhour.com. Give us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. We make this content for you. And if you're listening to this, the best thing you can do is give us a rating and review. Of course, subscribe to the show on, on your audio platform and on YouTube. And share it with a friend. Just send them a link to a, to a show sometime and say, hey, check this out. That would be wonderful. Please reach out to me. I love hearing from my listeners. I'm TG Montague on Twitter. You can reach me on the contact form on cleanpowerhour.com. And with that, I'll say, let's grow solar and storage. I'm Tim Montague. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. The Clean Power Hour is brought to you by CPS America, the maker of North America's number one three-phase string inverter. With over 6 gigawatts shipped in the U.S., the CPS America product lineup includes three-phase string inverters ranging from 25 to 275 kW. Their flagship inverter, the CPS 250-275, is designed to work with solar plants ranging from 2 megawatts to 2 gigawatts. The 250-275 pairs well with CPS America's exceptional data communication, controls, and energy storage solutions. Go to chintpowersystems.com to find out more.